welcome to another episode of the Feminist Survival Project 2020. I am Emily. And I'm Amelia. And this week we are going to talk about a study that we describe in the introduction of burnout that we think is, the reason it's in the introduction is because it's so foundational and my puppies are playing. And so that's some fun noise that's happening. There's going to be noise in the background of this one. And I think we're just going to have to be cool with that and not let it obstruct our access to the good stuff, which is actually what this is about. We put this study in the introduction because we think it is foundational to how to use all the information that we put in burnout and how to use all the information that we put in the podcast. So Amelia, will you describe this study? Yes, I really like this study a lot because of the simplicity of the design. All they do is they hand some mazes to the research subjects. Research subjects sit down at a table and they do mazes, you know, drawing on a piece of paper. And on some of the pieces of paper, there's a little mouse and at the center of the maze, a piece of cheese. So what are you getting to? You've taken the mouse, the cheese, because mice love cheese and there's a positive goal and get me to the cheese on time. On other pieces of paper, instead of the piece of cheese for the mouse, there is a dangerous owl looming over the page, ready to swoop down and eat the mouse. And it's the mouse's goal to escape the owl. And you give a big stack of these to, you know, some college students, undergraduates at the research university where the study is being done, and you calculate how fast do they get the maze done. Do the students who are getting to the cheese, achieving a positive goal, are they faster, more efficient than the ones who are getting away from the owl? Now look, if you're an undergraduate in college, you're not really afraid of an owl, and you're not really that motivated by cheese. And when you look at the mazes, it's quite cartoonish. It's, like these are, no, there's no attempt for them to be realistic. Right. So this, they're black and white lines. It's just drawings. a suggestion of positive goal or general threat. But it turns out the human nervous system is sensitive enough that it can be influenced just by the cartoon suggestion of cheese or the cartoon suggestion of an owl. That's enough to, yes, measurably change the outcome of how many mazes these students can do. Who do you think did better? Who, Amelia? <laughs> That's right. <laughs> you guessed it. It's the <laughs> students who are trying to get to the positive goal. Actually, some people might have been surprised by that. I probably would have thought like, oh, when you're afraid, you're going to run faster. But no. So let's think about this in the real world. When there's a threat, you run. You don't know where you're going. You don't know how to get there. You just go as fast as possible. So getting somewhere safe is actually less likely than if you know where safety is and you run towards safety. So running... I don't think we can necessarily stretch it that far. Okay, that may be an exaggeration. I'm trying to illustrate I think the point. simplest way. I think the simplest way to think about it is that uh, if you know precisely where you're going, you stay on target and you move toward that place. Whereas if you were just trying to get away from the owl, anywhere that is less dangerous than the owl is an improvement. So you're less focused on like going to some specific destination. And the thing about a maze is it's about going to a specific destination. So running away from the owl is less efficient in achieving anything. You end up taking longer and achieving less because you don't have a specific goal of running away from something that you want to avoid. Whereas if you have a positive thing you're moving toward, that's where we really are at our best. So what makes a student doing a maze take longer doing that maze and have it be slower? 
when they feel just a little bit threatened, a little bit of a sense of panic, they make more wrong turns, more quick decisions without thinking it through, without looking ahead, just, I don't know, get me somewhere. And they end up, you know, making more mistakes. Whereas when they're taking their time and easy and, ooh, there's a positive goal to get to, hmm, how can I get to that cheese? That state of calm is more likely to get them smoothly to where they want to be, to allow them to think through the choices they're making on their journey. Now, what on earth does this have to do with surviving 2020? Which, as we know, is way more of a shit show than even we anticipated. We have to ask ourselves, is survival a matter of achieving a goal or running away from a threat? And? It's kind of both. It has has to be be both, both. right? Of course, it has to be both. You have to avoid the actual threats. But in order to make getting through 2020 worth doing, it's not just. And landing in a place in 2021 that is better, that is less of a nightmarish hellscape, we have to move towards something. We can't just run away from the horror show. We have to run toward the thing that makes the horror show worth surviving. Right? And at this point, I just want to say insert our something larger episode. We have a whole episode on meaning and purpose, and that is the cheese. So one of the other reasons why it's so impactful to have that owl there, I want to talk about the difference between the way we receive positive experiences versus the way we receive negative experiences. If you think back to like some of your strongest memories in high school, or junior high school even more so, you probably remember a few really exceptionally positive experiences, but you probably even more strongly will have a physical reaction to remembering something negative that happened in high school or middle school. So I'm talking about adolescence because... Olive does. <laughs> I'm talking about she has adolescence feelings. because that's when uh, memories get stored in a very uh, especially strong way, permanent way. When you memorize song lyrics when you're 14, you remember those song lyrics for the rest of your life, right? Memories from adolescence are special. That explains into the woods. (laughs) Yes, and why you know every fucking word. Because there's a lot of words in that. Yes, yes, exactly. (laughs) I was watching him crawl back over the wall when bang, crash, the lightning flashed him. Well, that's another story. Never mind. Anyway, so the big day came. I made my claim. Don't take away the baby, they screamed and screeched. And (laughs) picking up. Emily kept going through the rest of the song. And Amelia waited because she knows. (laughs) Anyway, Emily has to finish. Okay, Uh, so those intensely strong things affect us more. We talked, actually, last week we were talking about helping, how Emily did not remember coming down to help me shovel snow, but I remember her coming down to shovel snow because that was a negative experience for me, and it was just a neutral or positive experience for her. It was safe. It was calm. Our bodies don't need to remember safe and calm. That's that's fine. But... Negative experiences are dangerous. They're threats. We need to remember them so that we can protect ourselves from them next time. So we have a stronger memory of negative experiences because when we remember and learn from negative things, it helps us survive. We don't need to remember or learn from a positive experience because there is nothing that we need to change or do differently based on that experience. So uh, you wanted to make sure we talked about why Running away from the owl is so impactful and it's really something we need to notice we're doing so that we can transfer our attention to moving toward the cheese. And there it is. Yes. But what I was saying is why the running away from the owl is our default experience because survival. It has to be because survival depends on, you know, not getting eaten by the owl. 
Yeah, we wouldn't be making a podcast if we all felt like the world was a safe place all the time. <laughs> right? Yeah, and sort of the whole point of this project is recognizing that the owl is there. Yeah. And giving people skills to continue moving toward their cheese in the face of the yeah, owl. Yeah, we should have done this topic much earlier in the podcast. <laughs> oh, well. So this is, I think this will be yeah, helpful. Yeah. And hopefully people will share it with other people to be like, here's why this feels so hard. And here's ways to do it. So what we have encountered since the pandemic began is sort of three ways that it has become more difficult to stay in contact with the cheese. And again, the cheese for us is a sense of meaning and purpose. Meaning is a sense that the world has a reason to be that like you exist to do something. We make meaning by engaging with something larger than ourselves. Meaning is not something you find, meaning is something you make by engaging with your something larger. What's your something larger? Everyone's something larger is different. Mine is teaching women to live with confidence and joy inside their bodies. Amelia, do you have a like one sentence something larger? Art. There you go. So, three things. Thing number one, if people don't know what their cheese is, if people don't know what they're moving toward, they don't know what their something larger is to engage in, to give them a sense that life is important, that all this struggle is worth it. I think that's especially true when it comes to coronavirus survival. Uh, it's just not getting sick. The goal is a negative, not getting sick. And that's not what's powerful and persuasive in people's, you know, life direction. Exactly. So if if that's your thing, if if your barrier to the cheese is not knowing what the cheese is, then go listen to the Something Larger episode because that's where we talk about that. Yeah. Strategy number two, or problem number two, is my problem. I know what my something larger is. I know what the cheese is. I know where the cheese is. I know how to, like, what are the strategies I can use to engage with my something larger to get to the cheese? And uh, the thing is, that owl, that in 2019, was large enough to make me think, you know what I should do? <laughs> I should start a podcast. <laughs> Because 2020, that's going to be a big fucking that's gonna owl. That's going to be an owl with That's going to, like, obstruct my... It's going to be a distraction. Yeah. It's going to be distressing. It's going to make it really hard to keep my eye on the prize. It's going to have those big, bushy attack eyebrows. Oh, man. Just, oh, boy. The spooky attack owl eyebrows. Yeah. It's going to come and get me. And making the podcast is a way that I can, like, bolster my resources and stay connected with the cheese. But that owl has grown... It's like now Godzilla owl. It is the size of my house, the owl. And on the one hand, just like the emotional burden of the degree of fear I feel walking around with an owl that size, you know, squatting in my backyard. It's like sitting in the tree in my backyard and the tree is bent down under the weight of that enormous 14 foot owl. owl. Right. So it's a little hard to like, I'm going to move toward the cheese. Keep your eye on the cheese. Work on this is very important. It just just, it just doesn't matter about the owl. That has made it much more difficult for me. Because <laughs> the owl is so fucking scary. Because <laughs> it's so scary. Because it is so much worse than anything I ever anticipated. So that's a barrier for me. Mm. And the third, one is, so one is not uh, knowing what your cheese is. Two is being so overwhelmed by the size of the owl that it's hard to 
stay connected to the cheese. And third, for you, I think there are real practical barriers between you and the cheese because of the owl. So it's not just like an existential idea. It's that like the rules, we'll talk a little about the um, webinar you attended. Yeah. Hold on one second. Well, I just feel a little bit of feelings about it. Yeah. Okay. So there are professional organizations related to singing and choral music, like Chorus America and the American Choral Directors Association and the um, National Association of Teachers of Singing and also American Medical Association, uh, mu something about music and medicine. Um, and some of these professional organizations pooled their resources and put together a webinar about the future of choral singing in a post-coronavirus world. And it was two and a half hours. The first 45 minutes was basically an epidemiologist talking to us about how droplets are spread. And um, it was so impactful that some of the anecdotes that the epidemiologist told, I was motivated in my new bathroom renovation to enclose the toilet in a water closet. <laughs> because aerosolization of fecal tissue. Like, yo. Fecal yeah. matter. Yeah. Yo. Dude. Yeah. So that's for my personal life. But in the terms of choral singing, the thing that spreads droplets is deep breathing and loud volumes. Mm -hmm. So... And it's both on Speaking eyes. quietly. There's on the one hand, there's like you speak loudly and it expels a lot uh -huh. of virus. Yeah. But then you inhale deeply and you take in a lot of virus that's hovering in the air all around you from the breath of the other yeah, people. Yeah, we've talked a little bit in the past how choral singing is a super spreading event. And there, there are anecdotes of several choirs where a vast majority of the singers have gotten sick once one person in the room got sick. So we learned how can you have a choral rehearsal that's safe. Step one, you need a vaccine. Okay. <laughs> That's okay. So, okay. So, like, if you're in a maze and you want to get to your there thing, is, which is There is now music, no way to get to the next. Yeah. There's, like, there's just a barrier. So then step yeah. two, if that ever happens, is to have testing available. Like, they called it home pregnancy test style testing, where everybody can just, like, test themselves every day on their own, independently, inexpensively. So there's another barrier. Definitely within 24 hours of every Within rehearsal. 24 hours of the start of the rehearsal, yes. And then when someone gets to rehearsal, someone who is not a singer in the choir interviews every individual, takes their temperature, takes their like past couple of days medical history. You don't have a fever. You don't have a cough. You're not feeling ill. Um, you haven't been in contact with anybody who has coronavirus. Okay, go on into rehearsal. Have a good time. That raises some privacy issues, like take in your singer's medical information is, I mean, that's a little sketchy. That's, I'm not sure that every singer is going to be content and happy and comfortable with that. There's a lot of, there's legislation about privacy regarding medical information. So I'm not sure how, how legal all of that is. In America, we just don't yet have any kind of tolerance for that yet. Yeah. I believe that will change, but like, that's a really heavy lift. If standing between you and a safe choral rehearsal is creating a culture where people feel comfortable answering those questions so that they get into a choral rehearsal, yeah. that's, that's a so heavy that's lift. So that's three big barriers. And then when we get into the choral rehearsal, we think everybody's healthy. We don't believe anybody has coronavirus on their clothes from having walked around the world all day. Anyway, then people are inhaling and exhaling. You cannot wear a mask when you sing. 
uh, because there's so much inhaling and exhaling that a mask prevents oxygen from getting in to the extent that anything that would actually protect you from a virus would give you hypoxia. The only kind of mask that will allow you to breathe deeply enough uh, and still get filtration from something as small as a virus is a biohazard suit that pumps in oxygen to supplement so that you're not just breathing in your own carbon dioxide. Yay! So, and if we think everybody's, you know, healthy and we're not worried about the inhaling and the exhaling, can we stand six feet apart? <sighs> not in most rehearsal rooms with the number of people in the choir, it's just not physically possible. So the next goal is to have really excellent ventilation. So like exchanging the air in the room five times an hour on a university campus where the building was built in 1971. That does not exist right now. Yeah. So that's another barrier. With viral trapping filtration. Yes, and even if it's not air exchange, at least moving the air and then you have an upper room UV light that kills bacteria, viruses, whatever pathogens that are floating in the air. If you're circulating the air so that those things float up to this upper room UV light, that can also be a thing that helps. And that's how you make a safe choral rehearsal. So your access to cheese. My cheeses. When people hear a story like that, they're not actually hearing, here are the practical steps I can take in order to hold my rehearsal, which is part of how I access my sense of meaning and purpose and who I am as a human being. What they're hearing is, you can't. can't. After this webinar, my, my circle of friends, as we know from this podcast, is mostly choral conductors and choral musicians of other kinds. There, there was just grief and pain and mourning of like, this loss of singing together, which for almost all of us is a huge source of meaning. Choral music is something larger for millions of people and the vast majority of my friends in particular. Um, so it was very painful. So one of the things that I did to think about how I can get through and navigate these barriers to my cheese actually, is that I am building a barn at a beach house that my husband just bought. And I want to use this barn as a place where I, I was going to hold like teach voice lessons and have rehearsals and stuff there. So now I'm going to, I've been reaching out to scientists and I want to like have the ventilation tested and to um, try different strategies for like having singers in there and find out how is this barn a safe place where we can experiment with ways that we can make a safe choral rehearsal so that while choral rehearsals are still quite risky, I won't be having rehearsals in there, but at least I can work with someone to try and create a space that's the kind of space that people can aim towards having their rehearsals in. So that's a, that is one of the ways that you are coping with the uh, lack of access to your cheese, yeah. is by, if I can't actually get to it, then I can work on some of these structural barriers that stand between me and the yes. cheese. And because I have this, I'm building a space from the ground up. I have access in ways that other people do not to making changes and making decisions and creating infrastructure intended for this purpose. Like, for example, putting the toilet in a water closet. Yeah. It's the same, Sarah. It's just now that I have information, I have this opportunity to build something more effective. Yep. That reminds me of uh, the hospital in the area in Michigan that's currently flooding because the dam is broke. Mm. Something similar happened in 1985, mm -hmm. and so the hospital there has a wall, a flood wall, and all their 
generators are above the floodplain. Smart. Because they learned from experience, so they're designed in a way that protects them now that it's happening again. Yeah. Like, when we have the experience and we learn from it, we can improve our situation. Yeah, I've been reading a lot about how design is going to be influenced by the pandemic, as it was influenced by the pandemic in 1918. Um, the 2020 pandemic is also going to have permanent changes in our infrastructure. Like, like for example, in public restrooms, having a little thing on the, f on the door at the bottom so you can open it with your foot. You know what I'm talking about? Yeah. Those are going to be a thing, probably. But yeah, it's going to change. So you're working on the thing. So uh, for some people, some people are not currently building a physical space in which they are open to the possibility of experimenting with ways to get access to their something larger. And when there is a wall between, it's actually incredibly like resourceful and intelligent of you to have adapted in that way of like, okay, so I can't get to the thing. Can I work on the walls to stand between me and exactly. the thing? Exactly. Here's Jeez. a big wall. Let me study this wall. Let me find out more about this wall. Let me see if there's, let me let me see if there's little cracks that I can, you know, pick apart. I, with my uh, overwhelming fear of my 14 foot owl. Yeah. I don't have a great solution to... The owl is so big that it makes it difficult to keep my eye on the cheese. But ultimately, I return to song lyrics because isn't that what you always do? Yeah. In times of I don't trouble? know what anybody else and does, but yes, song lyrics, yes. But I know a lot of people who have this kind of relationship with novels and with poetry. Yes. But for me, song lyrics seem to be the primary source. And generally, it's just Candide for me. <laughs> So, so we all know the story of Candide by Voltaire. We don't all know, but what a pretentious fucking bullshit thing for me to say. <laughs> we all know the story of Pangloss and his students, Kuniganda and Candide, and terrible things happened to them. They were told, all's for the best, and this the best of all possible worlds, and then terrible things happened. And at the end of it, Candide and Kuniganda find their way back to each other. And uh, they change their minds. They decide, no, it's not that all's for the best and this is the best of all possible worlds. In the musical adaptation by Leonard Bernstein, the finale is called Make Our Garden Grow. And Candide sings to Kunigunda, you've been a fool and so have I, but come and be my wife. And let us try before we die to make some sense of life. We're neither pure nor wise nor good. We'll do the best we know. We'll build our house. We'll chop our wood and make our garden grow. And when I get lost and like, here's how big the owl is, and here's how small the cheese is, I remember that ultimately the cheese isn't even my something larger, this like sort of abstract idea of teaching women to live with confidence and joy inside my body. Ultimately, it's uh, even like the Zen saying, chop wood, carry water. Before enlightenment, chop wood, carry water. After enlightenment, chop wood, carry water. Because in the end, the cheese is not really the goal. The cheese is not the thing that makes life worth living. Life is every day and the journey. Life is the choices you make from moment to moment. And that is also the cheese. After uh, 2001, in, two th in the fall semester of 2001, I was taking my diversity and multicultural studies in the counseling setting class. It's a mandatory class for anybody who's getting a degree in counseling. So of course, you need to think about diversity and especially confront your own internal, like, biases. And in the fall semester of 2001, mine was radical religion, fundamentalist Christians in particular, because I was living in Indiana. Mm -hmm. 
and rather and I you're supposed to do this project where you like confront your the people you have <laughs> most bias against and I like I was like I can't I can't I'm I get so angry I get like I really perceive them as being dangerous they are dangerous for like literal reasons like this is not just I got raised in a culture that taught me negative things and they need to have those myths no, busted. No, genuinely hurting people. Everything, yeah. every fucking yeah. time. So instead, the guy who was the director of the GLBT Student Support Services office at Indiana University, IU has one of the oldest GLBT offices on any college campus. And this guy, Doug Botter, was the guy in charge. And he was a retired minister. And uh, I was like, this is this project I have to do. What do I do? And he said, how about you talk to some faith leaders who are not evangelical, fundamentalist, religious people? How about you talk to some progressive religious leaders instead? And I was like, do you think that still counts? Because I could probably do that. And I, I did. It did. So I went and talked to the minister at an Episcopal church in Bloomington, Indiana. And she was so great. Because I was in this, like, sort of deep mourning around 9-11 still, because it was the fall semester 2001, of 2001. Yeah. yeah. Oh, and also our grandfather died in August oh, of 2001. Yeah. So I was yeah. like, what's going was on? Some shit, yeah. Yeah. So I sat down with her at a coffee shop, and I was like, so what do we do? Like, how, what's, when things seem terrible, when it seems like you're losing, and you're so angry, and you're backed into a corner, what do you do? And she uncrossed her legs and just like sat really relaxed in her chair and said, you take up all the space you take up. That's the end of the story. Oh. <laughs> well, that's pretty enlightened for an Episcopal. Like that's like that is the thing. Those are the kinds of things I go back to is uh, we'll build our house and chop our wood and make our garden grow. Let dreamers dream what worlds they may. Those Edens can't be found. The sweetest flowers, the fairest trees are grown in solid ground. That's more of Leonard Bernstein. And you just take up all the space you take up. A shift happened for me that semester because of that kind of thinking. I didn't go to an entrenched us versus them thinking. I softened in a really major way toward compassion and listening and thinking about the point of view of other people rather than just like reinforcing my own sense of what's right not just thinking why do i believe what i believe but why do other people believe the things they believe and how do i include them in my idea of humanity so it was it was a good project yeah and it like forced me to grow and I'm a much better person than I used to be as a result of having done it. But I did not find a way to like not feel fear when I'm confronted with angry fundamentalist Christians. See, this is where I'm going to encourage you then to read a lot of urban fantasy because it is a theme over and over again. What is courage in urban fantasy novels and well, all fantasy novels? There's battles and there's wars and there's large scale, you know, violent turmoil and over and over again, heroes have to reckon with, what do I do in the face of this fear? And what is courage? And uh, of course, we all know that courage is having fear, being afraid, and fighting anyway. But you get reinforced every time you read one of these stories, this idea of what is courage and what, it, what does it mean to, to give up or to fight on? 
What does it mean to be afraid? Does it mean something about who you are? No, it does not. Ish. I mean, that's not really sort of what the problem is for me. The problem for me is like, what does fighting look like? So I took well, this lesson from 2001 if the question is, into 2004. On, on. No, 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 wait, no, no, wait, no, no, wait. no, no. I'm just going to say, if the question is, what does fighting look like, then that's the third barrier you talked about. Mm, no, I don't think so. So I took that lesson from 2001 into <laughs> 2004 when it really seemed very important. And like, let's not like cherry co- cherry... It's not cherry coat? What the fuck is cherry that? Cherry pick, sugar coat? Let's not sugarcoat the 2004 election. Let's not sugarcoat the George W. Bush administration. A lot of bad things happened as a result of the election of George W. Bush in 2004. But it felt extremely important to me at the time. And I went through in the winter, like right at the beginning of 2004, I went through this questioning of like, should I drop out of grad school and volunteer for a political campaign because none of this stuff that I'm learning about in grad school is going to do anything if I'm living in a world where the policies are against everything that matters most to me. And I ultimately decided going back to my 2001 sense of like growth. I was like, no, I have this thing I do. And my job is to put my head down and do not to put my head down, like ignore, but to like just get really focused and work really hard on the thing that is my thing. Because I'm the person who does my thing. I'm not awesome at other things. And I kind of am awesome at this thing. And I'm getting better at this thing. And the better I get at doing this thing and the more I work on it and the more I just take up the space I take up and I refuse to surrender any of the space. But I also don't like fight against like to push into space that other people are holding. I just hold the space that I hold and I just keep doing that. Then I am doing what I need to do. That does not change the fact that I sunk into the deepest depression of my life at the end of 2004 after the election. But still, like I had a thing to return to after that happened. And I've gone through the same process here where I think about like, should I stop, you know, working on teaching women to live with confidence and joy in their body directly? Should I like volunteer for political something or other? Like what is it that I have to contribute in order to, and what I have to contribute is this motherfucking podcast (laughs) to help people, to help like feminists survive the shit show that we always knew 2020 was going to be. Including you. Right. Like to help me survive it, to keep working on the books, to do whatever talks people are willing to attend and build my house chop my wood and make my garden grow like just like this is me living my life taking up the space I take and refusing to surrender that space with and I don't need to fight to take anybody else's space as long as I never surrender the space that is mine and the metaphor you use in come as you are is that when you make your garden grow you help the garden next to yours and when that garden thrives it helps the garden next to it so when you make your garden grow all the gardens in your neighborhood and in your world, are also helped. Oh, right, I forgot about that part. Oh, you forgot about that part? (laughs) You're welcome. See, that was emotional support, everybody. (laughs) And also song lyrics. Right. And metaphors. Okay, hang on a minute. You forgot about the central metaphor of your first book? I forgot about the, like, extension. (laughs) 
because I don't get to the extension until the conclusion okay. where I go. It's because when you when you take care of your garden, when you tend your garden, you're not just tending your garden. You're making it easier for every garden around your garden to be yeah. there. Oh, right. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> so uh, the other thing I say in the conclusion <laughs> is that uh, when uh, you're feeling unsure and uh, self-critical, our, our instinct is to look around, to look outside ourselves for the answers. And instead, we should look inside ourselves. And so when you are feeling unsure, look up and see this book. And this book is a mirror. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so I, I literally, like, I have just used my own damn yeah. book as a mirror reflecting back to me. Like, remember that metaphor you had about how when you do you, you're making it easier for everybody else to do them. And you actually are participating in making the world a better mm-hmm. place. So when you are just declining to hide in panic from the 14-foot owl in your backyard, you have already won. Like, you are already... Whatever else you do, that is progress toward the cheese. It doesn't feel like progress toward the cheese, and it's not, like, the way you want to make progress toward the cheese, but it is declining to let them take the cheese away. And if you want song lyrics to remember to make that choice, to turn inward, it's, and the cold isn't out there at all, it's inside me. It's like the tide always falling and rising. It makes right. Emily uncomfortable when she listens to things where people sing in like a spontaneous way, like in audiobooks and things. So maybe some people won't like that, but like whatever. I like it a lot when people do that. Anyway. Yeah. I have also been relying on uh, the finale of Pacific Overtures, which was part of the Sondheim 90th celebration. So I wish there were like a sciencey frame that I could give to this whole make our garden grow solution to coping with a 14 foot owl, but there is not to my knowledge because how would you study it? How would you measure it? The courage that it takes to continue living your life and taking up the space you take, even though you're being followed around by a 14 foot owl with the scary owl eyebrows that because it's 14 foot tall, those are eight foot long eyebrows. There is research on post-traumatic growth that finds a strong correlation between post-traumatic growth and having a sense of meaning in your life. I'm not sure that can apply to the moment that you are currently living through it, No, but it can be extrapolated, maybe. The post is a pretty important part of it. But I have to live through it in order to get to the post-traumatic growth, and this is about the survival of how to, how to get to the part where you're post. Well, I think it's a legitimate hypothesis to say, well, if, it, if meaning contributes to growth after, meaning can contribute to survival during. That's true. I mean, in our Something Larger episode, we talk about the way a connection, a knowing what your Something Larger is and knowing how to connect to your Something Larger because it lives inside you, helps people live even through the worst imaginable situations. Oh, see, I just fucking reminded myself of my own goddamn yeah. book. Yeah, Jesus Christ. Yeah. I knew the answer all along. It was inside me. God. Well, it's like the tide always falling, always and, falling rising. and rising. Kind of the moment of the falling. And yeah. hey, here it is rising. Yeah, You're right. Welcome. So there we have it. <laughs> Humans do better when they move toward the, the cheese. Answer was Moana. Sometimes people don't know what the cheese is, and if you don't know what the cheese is, uh, listen to the Something Larger episode. Mm-hmm. Sometimes there are obstacles as a result of the owl that stand between you and the cheese and you can explore those walls with curiosity and see 
Like, is there a secret button in here? Is there like a way for me to, is there a vulnerability? Is there like, what can I learn about the wall in order to get around and through it so that I can get to my cheese? In other words, turn like, toward not, the wall. With kindness and fucking God compassion. Damn. God, damn it. God damn it. Jesus. And then the third is that your cheese is dwarf because uh, your owl is overwhelmingly huge and terrifying. And when that happens, you win by staying connected to your cheese, come what may. You build your house, you chop your wood, you make your garden grow. You continue to take up the space that you take, like that Episcopalian minister taught me to do in that coffee shop in the fall of 2001. You just, doesn't matter how hard it gets, you just refuse not to take up the space that you take up. And when you make your own garden grill, you make it a little bit easier for every garden adjacent to your garden also to be all the space that that gardener wants it to take up. No more, no less. Bingo. And that was this episode of the Feminist Survival Project. You can follow us on the social medias at FSP2020. We're on Instagram and Twitter. Twitter is really just reposts of the Instagram. Amelia is posting amazing pictures of her rescue dog, Sadie, at Burnout Book Group on Instagram. It's very entertaining and heartwarming. Highly recommend. 14 out of 12 would rescue again. (laughs) And uh, that's another way to get a sense of meaning and purpose. (laughs) Everybody should just rescue a dog. Okay. If you have uh, other strategies for sustaining contact with your cheese and pursuing your cheese in the face of a 14-foot owl with 8-foot scary eyebrows, you can let us know. Go to our website, feministsurvivalproject.com, and send us an email. And uh, thanks for listening. Get me to the cheese on time. The Feminist Survival Project 2020 is a part of the Frolic Podcast Network. Find more podcasts you'll love at frolic.media slash podcasts.